0: Hello everyone. Welcome to Power Up Women, our cross-generational, cross-cultural conversation about leadership, power, gender, and social justice. I'm Dana Harvey. So February is Black History Month. My co-host Ann Doyle and I wanted to share with you a fascinating conversation with Sybil Heidel Moriel, a legendary civil rights activist, educator, and author of Witness to Change, From Jim Crow to Political Empowerment and spoke with this Louisiana legend for the Game Changers podcast of the International Women's Forum. We now share with you.
1: I am saddened that 65 years after the civil rights laws, the voting rights, that we are back where we were. The laws are in our favor now. But again, here we are in the midst of hatred and resentment because of race and color and religion and social status. The members of the International Women's Forum are superb women who have achieved to at the top of their Professions who have a strong voice, who are respected. But collectively, this organization has a commanding presence and credibility worldwide. And I think that when we step in and become a
2: part of this,
1: we're going to help to bring about change. Mm -hmm.
2: Welcome to IWF Game Changers, a monthly conversation with some of the trailblazing members of the International Women's Forum. I'm Ann Doyle, President of IWF Michigan and your host. IWF is a global network of more than 7,000 highly accomplished women leaders from 33 nations. They are policymakers, executives, pioneers, and instigators of change united to advance women's leadership and champion human equality. Each month, we talk with these trailblazing leaders as they share insight from their professions and lessons learned from their life journeys. So let's talk about life in leadership. Our featured guest today is a Louisiana legend, Sybil Heidel Morial a civil rights activist, educator, community leader, and author of Witness to Change, From Jim Crow to Political Empowerment, the powerful memoir about her remarkable life. As Ambassador Andrew Young, a childhood friend, and Sybil's high school prom date, wrote in the books forward, and I quote, it is doubtful that New Orleans could have produced two mayors with the dynamic, creative, and visionary leadership of Dutch and Mark Morial without a wife and mother of Sybil's loving strength, intelligence, and moral courage. But the life she lived in the crucible times and her perception of the civil rights movement in New Orleans goes far beyond that." End quote. Welcome, Miss Sybil.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
2: Well, you know, your life spans one of the most uh, critical periods in our country's history, and you have been so much more than a witness. You have also played a very active role as a catalyst for really sweeping changes in the fight against desegregation, uh, to end Jim Crow, and the fight for voting rights. And I'm reading your remarkable memoir right now, it it is really such a privilege to talk to you. So let's start uh, with giving our listeners who maybe are just meeting you a sense of how you grew up, uh, both as a privileged daughter of a very accomplished and educated parents in New Orleans, but also confined by the very dehumanizing Jim Crow rules of a very segregated South. Take us back there.
1: I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, the deep south, under rigid segregation. My parents and their friends wanted more than that for their children. So we were raised as a village. Our parents arranged for us to be exposed to what we were deprived of by not being able to go to public places. We could not go to restaurants, we couldn't go to concerts, the opera, speakers, the, the beach. Uh, we, we were just limited, couldn't even go into City Park. And so they t- all met together and we had family picnics and Easter egg hunts. There were two historically black colleges in New Orleans, Xavier University and Dillard University. And at those universities, they presented operas and plays and national speakers, and our parents made sure that we went to all of those uh, events, expanding our uh, knowledge and exposing us to what we were deprived of.
2: When did you as a child get a sense of, of this deprivation? Uh, that, that existed outside of this beautiful, powerful bubble that your parents created around you?
1: I guess we sense from the time we were very young, even though the neighborhoods in New Orleans were not segregated, unlike other Southern cities, we played with children of other races, of other economic status. Uh, and so we, we didn't grow up suspecting or not knowing about those who were not like us. But we were well aware that we could not go to the movies and sit downstairs with our white friends. We could not go to City Park. We had to get on the bus and sit in the back of the bus. That was when we were in high school. Uh, In the morning, we'd say hi to each other and uh, uh, my white friends would go in one direction to their white school, and we would go in another direction to our black school. So that was, the, that was the status quo. That was what we grew up with. We didn't know anything else except the wonderful life that our parents arranged for.
2: And every once in a while, consistently, you were given reminders, such as uh, the story you told about uh, how your mother loved opera and used to take you, but you had to climb, I believe it was 103 steps to exactly. get to the upper balcony, uh, yes. your poor mom.
1: <laughs> and yes, we stopped at every landing and she was exhausted and I think a little bit angry. Sure. But th- another experience when I was a teenager, I guess I was 14, um, my sister was a year older, Andrew Young, my childhood friend, our mothers were friendly, and several other teenagers. We were riding our bikes in the neighborhood and we were not too far from City Park. We went up Esplanade, a beautiful uh, Avenue with a canopy of trees. And when we got to the end, there was city park, this lush, green, beautiful place. And we looked in and we knew we weren't supposed to go in. But We knew we, we're not going to do any harm. We dr- we peddled in. And when we got to New Orleans museum of art, which was at the end of the, of the entrance, out comes a policeman with his nightstick. And he was very aggressive and very angry. And he said, you little ants, get out of here. You know you don't belong here.
2: Let's take us to, uh, yeah, our listeners, to another really defining moment in your life, which was um, going north uh, to Boston University. Uh, and uh, you, you tell about the train ride where you um, had to sit in the, uh, the colored section, which was in the baggage car of the train. But once you got up north, um, you discovered something very, very different than what you grew up with. Um, what did you discover and, and what was the impact on you?
1: My sister and I had traveled with my parents to national Conferences. My father was a surgeon and each year he went to the National Medical Association and oftentimes we would drive and take the family. So we traveled all over the country uh, when I was young and I knew the difference in the North. I wanted to experience that and so I chose Boston because I remembered it as an arts center, as an academic center. So it was Boston University, went to, transferred in, in my junior year and I went to everything I could. I was free, I was not gonna be turned away, it was open, I went to the theater. I remember the first musical I had ever seen, I was 18 years old, it was Oklahoma. <laughs> I went to the opera, I went to museums, we could go to restaurants, we could go to lunch counters.
2: The other thing that's fascinating is that, I mean, your social circles, I mean, from the time you were very, very young, I mean, read like the who's who of the civil rights movement in this country. Uh, for example, college friend, Martin Luther King, your generation of um, the, the children of educated, relatively uh, affluent, parents sent your children north to be educated, but then as the civil rights movement in the late 1950s was picking up, you all went home, which was very dangerous at that time. I mean, you could have stayed in the North, but so many of you, including you, went home. Why?
1: All of the black students in the Boston area, Harvard, MIT, Boston University, Boston College, and several others, Wellesley. We all, all the black students do each other through sororities and fraternities and other okay. networks, and we socialized together. Okay. And when the Brown decision came down, all of us from the South were well aware that this meant change. How was it going to happen? Mm-hmm. Even though we love the freedoms of the North we wanted to go back home to the woman to the man every one of us wanted to go back home because we wanted to be a part of the change we had no idea what it would be
2: you know there's so much to talk about but i'm going to jump us ahead a little bit to um you as a young mother uh with toddlers and your husband um was um, he was president of uh, the New Orleans NAACP, uh, a target of the KKK lawyer, obviously, and became uh, the first African-American mayor of New Orleans. But uh, you were not just his closest advisor uh, and life partner. You also were very, very active at that time. Tell us about what you were doing.
1: When the civil rights uh, uh, movement uh, began to grow all over the country. It was on the evening news every day, and I watched the news, but I couldn't wait for my husband to come home. He was very active as the president of the NACP, but he was also was on the legal team uh, that had to figure out how to bring the states in line with the federal mandate from the the, uh, Supreme Court couldn't wait for him to come home. And at one point I said, I don't want to be a spectator. I want to be a participant. I want to be out there myself. So I and several of my girlfriends, seven, there were eight of us, we, we were young mothers and we could not, there were other organizations that helped people to become registered voters, that there were a lot of barriers, but you had to become a registered voter, you had to pass a literacy test, a citizenship test, figure your name in days, weeks, months, and years. You try that, do it the day before you go in and you get all mixed up. And you had to have the appropriate identification and the deputy registrars would change it on, on their whim, you know, to, to prove uh, your, your residence. So, yeah. so we established workshops All over the city, we used uh, African American churches because we were always welcome there. Remember, this is still the segregated South. We met with the people; they were so wanted to become voters, they so wanted their voice to be heard. And so we went through the whole process of becoming a registered voter, and many of them did. But many of them met were met with uh, humiliation. Uh, They were. They were intimidated.
2: Sure. I want to talk about courage, because you have witnessed and exhibited so much courage throughout your own lifetime. Uh, your son, Mark, uh, also became the mayor of New Orleans and is now the president of the National Urban League. Um, you know, As a mother who knows what it's like to have to warn your sons, in particular, about how to behave with the police, what have you learned about um, maybe modeling courage?
1: When we were in the public's eye, uh, we talked at the dinner table about what was going on. Um, but we always cautioned our children, this is the way it is. Uh, always be polite, always keep your dignity. Uh, you can make your, your, your mark if you present yourself in the right manner. So they had to learn to navigate uh, in this segregated city, in this segregated society. But inside, they were resenting what they had to experience. And I think this awareness, this being in the crucible, uh, led them to become adults, who cared, who was strong and courageous to be to be involved in their personal lives and in their professional lives. All five of them are today and throughout their adulthood been involved in their own way.
2: Yeah. Well, we have arrived at another moment of reckoning in US history uh, regarding racism, which was triggered by the the horrible murder that we all witnessed of George Floyd. So how do you feel right now about where we are? And are you hopeful, discouraged? Share your feelings.
1: I am saddened that 65 years after the civil rights laws, the voting rights, the uh, uh, housing, equal, equal opportunity in housing, that we are back where we were. The laws are in our favor now. But again, here we are in the midst of hatred and resentment because of race and color and religion and social status. It's all, again, and it's violent. And so I'm saddened by it. But I'm also strengthened that we can do it again. We must do it again. And those of us who experienced it in the past must step forward and we must encourage the young people of this generation it is your duty to step forward and make this a society that is humane and respects the dignity of everyone.
2: You know uh, that, that's a powerful example of the fact that you know it's one thing to change laws which can be hard enough. But in other ways, it's even harder to change hearts and minds. And that's really where we are now. Yes. I want to finish up by talking about the International Women's Forum because this is the IWF's Game Changers podcast. Uh, You are a founding member of the Louisiana chapter of the IWF. Um, Tell us what it has meant to you.
1: Well, when I was asked, to start the, the chapter in New Orleans. Uh, my husband was mayor then. Um, I was intrigued by this uh, organization of women. It was then the National Women's Forum. And I knew Ellie Guggenheimer, who was the founder ah, of yes. uh, the National Women's Forum, which became the International Women's Forum. And I was so intrigued by these strong and accomplished women that wanted to uh, move us forward in society.
2: You know, the, uh, the mission of the IWF for a long time was to advance women's leadership. And last year it was expanded to also include and to champion equality worldwide. So I wanna ask you to maybe finish up with us by um, uh, sharing with your IWF sisters, maybe how we can be allies in the fight against racism and for social justice, which has been your life's work.
1: The members of the International Women's Forum are superb women who have achieved, who are at the top of their professions, who have a strong voice, who are respected, but collectively this organization has a commanding presence and credibility worldwide. We are not just in the United States, we have expanded to Europe and Asia and South America and even Australia. Um, and so our voice can be powerful. It is powerful because we are respected, because we know how to present ourselves, because we care and because we've expanded our mission to champion equality. And I think that when we step in and become a part of this, we're gonna help to bring about change. Well, Sybil, anything else you'd like to add? I would like to share with our members some quotes. I think that we need to be introspective as individuals and collectively as an organization. And this is one. Are we going to be spectators in the decline of our democracy? Or are we going to be participants? As we decide, I leave you with these quotes. If not me, who? if not now, when? A quote from Rabbi Hillel that Robert Kennedy made thanks. We must quote, we must unite with compassion if we are to survive. And Martin Luther King quote, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters, or we shall die together as fools. And finally, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends.
2: Well, thank you so much, Sybil Heidel Morial, civil rights activist, founding member of the Louisiana chapter and author of Witness to Change, from Jim Crow to Political Empowerment. It's been a pleasure.
1: My pleasure, Amy.
2: And thanks for joining us for this episode of Game Changers, a monthly conversation with trailblazing members of the International Women's Forum. I'm Ann Doyle, president of IWF Michigan and your host. We hope you'll join us again as we talk about life and leadership.
0: Thanks so much for joining us at Power Up Women. If you like this episode, Ann and I hope you'll subscribe, share with us your networks, and rate us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. We would also love to hear from you through our Power Up Women Facebook group. I want to leave you with a quote that inspires the both of us from Martin Luther King Jr. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. So remember... Power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work. Now let's all go power up.